And so the kind of the just the, the main plain question here is what is the fear of God and why does it matter? Like it's the fear of God only some ancient Old Testament idea that that we don't need now since you know grace has come through Jesus, so we don't no fear, right? Well, Acts chapter 9, verse 31 says this. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And it's important to know this verse, it, it takes place the, the, right after they recorded the events of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And Saul had zealously persecuted the church. He made his personal mission to hunt him down. And then on the road to Damascus, Jesus Christ revealed himself in blinding light to Saul. And God converted Saul's zeal for persecution into zeal to spread the gospel. And so we might, we might well imagine how the early church would have responded to this as the word got out. Like, just, they must, you know, been thinking, wow, how awesome is our God. He can change anything. He can, he can change the heart of our worst enemy and make him into a champion for Christ. So small wonder they, they walked in the fear of God. And it says the church multiplied when they walked in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So the fear of the Lord, it is not obsolete. It is essential for God's people. And so therefore, we should know what it means. We should get a clear idea. What, what is this talking about here? So we're going to look at Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 22, which we read earlier. And in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is recounting to the Israelites their history that they've lived from their freedom, their, their escape from Egypt, and also his provision to them in the wilderness wanderings. And so after retelling their history to them, he gives them this call. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 22. And now, Israel, what does the Lord require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great 
and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. So in these verses, we see two thieves weaving back and forth. And we could summarize it as the, the majesty of God and man's response. And so our, our fear and obedience, they are a response to who God is and what God has done. And so first off, we see God, God is creator. The earth and the sky and the heavenly realms and everything they contain are his. And yet, he chose Israel. It was his gracious love based just based on his gracious love to choose them and he chose to deliver them to bless them and to set them apart for his special purposes and we also the lord is god of gods lord of lords he is the great the mighty the awesome god so he is he is above any person power or authority you can imagine and he is also perfectly holy and just. He shows no partiality. He cannot be bribed. His justice cannot be perverted. And all will answer to him. God also shows compassion to the afflicted. He will bring justice to the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner. He cares for them out of his love. And God is faithful. Just as he had promised Abraham... He made Israel into a multitude of people. So this is the God. This is what he's like. And this is the God who calls his people to fear him. And this fear of the Lord, this means you fear displeasing him because he is holy and just. You worship him with reverence and awe. Your heart is fully devoted to him. So you live according to his commandments in every area of life. You use your life to serve him and bring him praise. So you live for him, even above yourself. And because God graciously chose Israel and delivered them, they were called to cut the sin out of their hearts by letting go of their stubbornness. Now, now we know when you tell someone, stop being stubborn. You know, usually that just makes it worse, right? That's our human, our human nature. You, we were told, stop being stubborn. You know, usually, oh, I'm going to be more stubborn. Uh, <laughs> but God, this is a response. You know, that, that's a response to you and me. We're responding to each other. Um, all, all, all of us parents know this, right? But God is unique. You're responding to him when he says, he's you hear it as a plea, please stop being stubborn. Give up your sinful ways and follow my good and righteous ways. So let go of your stubbornness. That's something all of us can take to heart, right? And God calls his people to be like him because they are his people. So therefore be like him. And since they were oppressed and afflicted and they were wanderers, they should be kind to the afflicted. And all of, us have, all of us have been there to some degree. We've all been in need of help. Therefore, we should be like God and be, stand up for justice and help the afflicted. And Moses also reminded them that they were eyewitnesses of God's terrifying deeds. And this really brings us closer to our point today here, which is, you know, because it's one thing to say the words, well, God is like this, God is like that. 
It's another to witness his mighty deeds. And the, the, a summary of those deeds is in the next chapter, chapter 11, starting verse 5. And it says, Consider, consider the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm, his signs and his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all his land. And what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and to their chariots. How he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you. And how the Lord has destroyed them to this day. And what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place. So Moses is speaking to the, to the generation that saw and lived through these things as they're preparing. It's kind of his farewell address as they're preparing to finally go into the promised land. They, they live these things. So he's saying, remember, look back at what you experienced with God. So he's saying, you know, hey, do you remember how God heard your prayers and delivered you by mighty deeds? Do you remember how he turned the river Nile to blood? Do you remember how he swarmed the land with frogs and then with gnats and then with flies? Do you remember how he killed their livestock with plague but spared yours? Do you remember how he infected their skin with boils but he spared you? Do you remember how he pounded the whole land with, with flaming hail but he spared your crops, your livestock, your land? Do you remember that, that plague of locusts that covered the whole land of Egypt? Except for your land. I mean, that, that's a phenomenon. It'd be like a, a wall, just an invisible wall. He, there's a cloud of locusts right here. But over where the Israelites lived, nothing. No explanation for that phenomenon. <laughs> just supernatural. But then most of all, do you remember the Passover? How God spared Every house covered by the blood. And remarkably, everyone, whether they are Israelite or Egyptian, whoever feared and obeyed and put the blood of the lamb over their door, that house was spared. And then, do you remember? Do you remember how God made the waters of the Red Sea stack up like a wall so that God, the people could go cross through on dry land to the other side, but that he brought that water crashing down on the Egyptian army pursuing and hunting them, wiping out all of Egypt's military power in one blow. Moses is calling out to those people, do you remember? And all of you, I mean, you have, you have things in your life where God intervened, where God provided, where God showed himself to you. And that's a call for all of us too. Do, do you remember? Do you look back and recall those things, how God has worked in your life? So these people at that, that time, they experienced God's power to deliver. And as they followed his lead, they knew him in a new and deeper way. They knew he was the God who hears because he heard them. They knew he is the creator God, the God above all gods, because no power can contest him or stall him for even a microsecond. So his power, it's over all creation. It's above every other power that could be. And he's also, they saw, a God of terrible judgment. And he's a God of gracious mercy, extending that mercy even to his enemies who will turn to him and fear and obey him. 
And he is the faithful God who keeps his promise from generation to generation. But, but when we look through their story, because it also says what he did to you in the wilderness. Oh yeah, that part. The Israelites didn't respond well to God's presence on Mount Sinai, as, as, as Exodus and, and records and as Deuteronomy retells. When God's holy presence descended upon the mountain, the mountain shook, which is itself, I mean, you imagine this enormous mountain that is supposed to be the most unshakable solid thing in creation in there in the ancient world's under view of world, and it's shaking. And it says the people's hearts tremble too. But their hearts trembled not with holy fear leading them to worship and obey God. Their hearts trembled with terror of God's judgment and punishment. And so they wanted to avoid God's holiness. They know I don't, I can't be here. And they cried out to Moses, Moses, you, you hear from God and then you tell us what he says. Because if we hear any more from God, we are going to die. So, and their heart problem is the same problem that humanity has in every generation. We don't want to know God's, at least what, until Christ intervenes, we'll get to that, the change that Christ makes. But, but in our, of ourselves, we don't want to know God's holiness because the sin in our hearts feels its wrongness in the presence of God's holiness. We'd rather have a much smaller God, someone more like us, made in our image, a friend, a buddy, a, a gentle grandfatherly caretaker who gives us gifts, right? Like that. Rather not have a, a living creator God whose splendor overwhelms us in every way. But despite this problem, God gave the Israelites a promise that he would provide salvation from their stubborn hearts. And he gives us right away in De Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, he says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. And you catch the difference here? 10, he says to them, you, I'm calling you, you circumcise your hearts and let go of your stubbornness. And here he says, the Lord God will do it. He will make the change in your heart. And this promise was fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ. In Matthew 27, a portion of what we read earlier, verses 50 through 54 record the moment of Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Now some have uh, wondered if this confession meant what, what the Jews meant. Because uh, pagans have their own idea 
of what a son of God is, like a Hercules, a demigod, etc. Um, but, but I want to remind us of, the, of what Scripture describes here, because once again, we have, we have a mountain <laughs> where man encountered God. But in this case, God's holiness, it was hidden behind a weak and human form that was tortured and beaten and crucified. And once again, the mountain shook. The laws of nature were undone. And the Holy Spirit revealed to a pagan Roman centurion that this was the Son of God. And then consider this, this the centurion, he had very likely observed the whole trial of Jesus from the court of Pilate to the cross. He knows what Jesus was, he was accused of, and he knows who Jesus claimed to be, and he had watched, he observed Jesus' behavior and character every step of the way. And so his words, this is the Son of God, they're not in his pagan context. They are said in the context of this Jewish trial. And he hadn't observed any, you know, supernatural strength or power displayed by Jesus in the body like a Greek demigod might show. He had seen just the person. He'd seen the person of Jesus, though he'd heard the words of Jesus spoken. And he saw the world shaking, and he saw the signs. And instead of running away, he stood and he confessed, truly this was the son of the God of Israel. And so the whole, it's the Holy Spirit revealed to his heart that, this, that Jesus was the Christ. And tradition tells us that this centurion, his name was Longinus, and that he did become a believer and a follower of Christ. And I'd like us all to consider as well what, what this confession must have meant for his conscience. I mean, so he and his soldiers put Jesus on the cross. They put him to death. And then in the moment of his death, they realize, the centurion realizes, he is the son of God, which means they just, he put the son of God to death. That's on him. He did that. So what guilt and terror he must have felt. And yet he, he stood and confessed he didn't run away. <laughs> he stood and confessed. And this was possible because Jesus was on that cross for him and for you and for me. So there on the cross, the justice and the holiness of God met with God's mercy and grace. And in, in Jesus, on the cross, we see that as great as God's holiness and justice are, so great are his love and his mercy. And just as great as our sin against him is, even greater is his forgiveness in Jesus Christ. He was crucified for you to take away your sin and bring you to God. So the question is, will you receive what he has done for you by believing in him? And will you follow him? Because Jesus will take away your sins so that, that there, the terror of God's holiness is gone and is replaced with a reverent fear that worships God and loves him. And I, you could think of this like the train we, we talked about in the children's message, except we're going to elaborate a little bit here. Because if you are running down a track, a train track, away from a train, 
That would be terrifying, especially if you, you know, we would say, well, just get off the track, but just go with the illustration here. <laughs> if you're running down a train track away from a train, that's terrifying. The, the, the power of that train, you know, it, it is incredible. I mean, you can feel the tracks and the ground shaking. And if you think that train's out to get you, I mean, you might cry out like, it's coming for me, right? It's going to get me. And in, in your mind, then, the train has become this distorted image from your terrified imagination. And it's coming. And it cannot be stopped. And it cannot be outrun. But if you are at the train station and you have a ticket for that train and you know that train's coming to take you to paradise, well, then you wait for that train. You are looking for that train with anticipation, with eagerness. And, and, and you love the fact that it's coming for me. Same words, different meaning, right? And the train, same train, it's, it's no less powerful. It's no less dangerous. In fact, to demand that the train be less dangerous is demand that it not be a train. So there is, there's still going to be fear. You, you don't step on, in front, on the tracks in front of a moving train, right? No matter whether you got a ticket or not, you don't jump in front of the tracks. And trains, they're, you know, like I said, they, they're awesome because they're so big and powerful. It's, their power's a bit overwhelming and intimidating. But this powerful, dangerous train, it's, in this case, with the ticket, it's for you. And when you get on board, you have inside access. You know that train. You belong there. You have a ticket. You have a spot. So when we harden our hearts in sin and rebellion, then our terror of God's holiness, it's like the first person. Our sin feels its wrongness in the presence of his holiness, and we, we run away in terror. But when Jesus takes your sin away, then you're like, your heart is like the second person. The fear of the Lord becomes your delight. You, you, you love that his glory makes you tremble, and it makes you want to know him more. Jesus, to this day, continues to make himself known, to reveal himself. But he doesn't do it through shaking mountains. <laughs> he does it through his Holy Spirit, enlightening hearts through the word of God. 1 Peter 1.23 says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So you don't have to be in terror of God's holiness. And you don't have to, to go to a shaky mountain to know God. The word of God shows you God in Jesus Christ. He is the one who takes away your sin and shows you the Father. And these are received by faith in Jesus because he's the only one who can show you God rightly. Without him, you cannot see God rightly. But when you know God, when you see him rightly, you, you will fear him. You will be in awe because you will know the weight of his glory and the awesomeness of his holiness. And the Holy Spirit also will comfort you because this awesome God is for you and Jesus Christ has taken away your sins and you have nothing to be in terror of. And reminded of how God revealed himself to Moses, he says, I am that I am, or I will be what I will be. Meaning, you know, God is, is the ultimate reality. He, he cannot change who he is. 
nor should he. <laughs> he is the unshakable, unchangeable reality. And so this awesome God is the God who saves. And so if this is who he is, if this is the way things are, then, then it's the most natural thing to set your, part, your heart upon him, to worship him, to pray to him alone, to seek to know him and his will and his ways, and to devote your heart fully to him. And at times, to tremble at his majesty. As Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 say, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Amen. Please pray with me. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word to us that shows us you, that reveals us to you, your nature, your awesomeness, your goodness, your justice, your love, your grace shown to us in Jesus Christ who saves us from our sin and brings us to you so that we may know you and be like you. And pray that each of us would take this to heart, um, that we would let go of any sin or stubbornness that we're holding on to and we would let your grace do its wonderful work in our hearts that we might have the comfort of the Holy Spirit and also that the knowledge of you would bring us to, to worship and delight in who you are. Pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.